Join us each week as Andrew, Ray, and others bring us in on one of their weekly phone conversations with an amazing agent. This is Little Oak Weekly. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Little Oak Weekly. This week, again, you got Justin Hawks with Remax Little Oak, and we are going to chat with Andrew Bracewell again. He is an agent with Remax Little Oak as as well as one of the broker owners. Put him in the hot seat, and we will ask him some more questions. We thought we might do this every couple months, just a chance to hear from him, talk about things going on in the market as well as things happening within the brokerage. So without any further ado, let's give Andrew Bracewell a quick shout. Good morning. What's up? How's it going? I'm in my living room, sitting in the sunshine. So I would say it's going pretty good. My house is empty and I have some peace and quiet. That's not bad for a more, what, what are we, Thursday morning? That's pretty good. Thursday morning. Uh, kid, kids drop off was a nightmare today. So <laughs> 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 yeah, it was, it was an, it was a mess, but we're, we're through it. It's okay. So I'm good now. Sweet. So I, I just mentioned quickly in the intro that we're we're back to putting you in the hot seat and maybe doing this every couple months. You're going to be up for that? Totally. Yeah. I I love to talk. And if people don't get irritated at my voice, then I'll keep doing it. That's great. Yeah. So I, I reached out again to a couple agents and then I've got some stuff. Thought it'd be a good, uh, a good way to find some content to talk to you about as well as things going on in the market and uh, at the brokerage level as well. Okay, cool fire away. I, I only got stumped. I think I got the last time we did this, there was one question where I was like, man, that's a good question. And I feel like I fumbled. So I'll try I think, not I to, think in uh, the end it sounded fine. I'll try not to fumble this time. <laughs> I probably just rearranged your sentence anyway. Oh, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's good. Hey, that doesn't sound like me. I don't remember saying it in that order, yeah. but all right. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to give you an easy one just to start off, but is there any current uh, book or TV show you're, you're into? You know what? I haven't been watching any, any shows, a book that I'm into. I've been doing a lot of like podcasts and audio. All right. Any podcasts, specific ones? Yeah. So I've kind of delved into the world of cryptocurrencies. Mm -hmm. I got into that through a friend of mine, not like, you know, eight years ago when it would have been absolutely amazing. Yep. Uh, but in the last, uh, six to eight months. So there's a few guys, there's a guy that I really like. I think his name is Rao Paul or Ru Paul. I could actually pull it up here. I've got it right on my phone. So I've been watching like a bunch of YouTube stuff and listening to, um, to some, you know, crypto theorists talk about, you know, the world of Bitcoin, Ethereum, stuff like that. I, I dove into that world, you know, myself from an investment perspective, like, I don't know, maybe six months ago. So that's, proven to go really well. And so I've been really into that kind of stuff. And then, um, and then I just, I, I'm always, I'm a fan of, you know, Joe Rogan, uh, Sam Harris. So Sam Harris has the, uh, podcast making sense. And then the, um, and then the app waking, waking up, um, which is like a meditation type app, but yeah, Joe. And then, and then the guests that those guys have, like, I, I find that, you know, between Joe Rogan and Sam Harris, the guys that they have on, I, I really enjoy listening to, and it, it's a broad range, right? It ranges from like, whatever science to, um, I don't know, like it, it, in revolution or evolution, um, all kinds of different, and then business, right? Uh, Tim Ferriss is another guy that I love and I've been listening to, um, his podcast. Although I'll find with Tim Ferriss, I think I like hearing him on someone else's podcast better than I like hearing him on his own podcast. 
because I find that when he's being interviewed, I like how the value and the information comes out of him when someone's drawing it out of him. So there's a, whatever, there's a unique thought on Tim Ferriss. All right. Are you ready? Cause we're going to jump right into these. Yeah. I mean, I thought we were already in. Was that, was that a fake that, question? That was just my, that was my lob for you. That was the nice, was easy one. Okay. That I'm, was the lob. That's I'm right. good. I mean, I don't know. I might, I, I'll try to do my best, but I thought we were already going. So far away. All right. So, uh, what would you say are your core values as an agent? Hmm. Authenticity. I, I could actually just maybe stop there and just say that that's, that's everything. So that's, that comes through in the unwavering belief that my advice that I give to my clients is authentic at all times, no matter, uh, what that means for me or, um, what they're, or, you know, how that might compare to what they're hoping to hear. And then also from a business perspective, I stay authentic to who I am in terms of how I do things. I've spoken about this before, but in years gone by, I would say that I did a very poor job of that. And when I did a poor job of that, I really hated what I did for a period of time. So yeah, authenticity is, I don't know, I guess it could be my only core belief, but it's definitely, it's definitely number one by a long shot. So someone asked us what, so where would Andrew stand on what he would say the core values and philosophies are that would make a good platform for the success of an agent? Would you, would you stick with pretty much the authenticity then? Yeah. Okay. So that's phrased a little differently. I could expand on that. Mm -hmm. I think that's the trap. There's a bit of a trap that you can fall into. I can't speak about all sales careers, but I can talk about real estate and the trap that you can fall into in real estate is trying to become someone that you are not. and we do that because we see examples around us of people who are quote unquote successful or, you know, crushing it, or they're the, they're the people in the industry that everybody looks up to. And then as a result, I know what goes on and went on in my mind subconsciously was that I needed to become that. And the problem is, is that that only works for people for whom that is a good design for. And I would say more often than not mimicking somebody else, you know, can sometimes not work out. And, and the reason it doesn't work out is because it's, you know, you're maybe contradicting who you are. So finding a way to have you come through in what you do, the way you communicate with your clients, the way you market yourself, the way you talk to somebody when you're in an open house, the way you talk about your value proposition when you're sitting at someone's dining room table. Like, I mean, there are, there is, obviously value and learning from those that have gone before us, but at some point in time, you have to customize it to you. And I think there's just a multitude of benefits that come from that. Number one, your messaging is more authentic. And I think that people see uh, and feel that it doesn't sound like it's coming out of a can. And I also think the more we can put ourselves in a situation where we're just us walking around doing our thing versus trying to be someone else walking around doing our thing there's a higher level of likelihood that you're going to enjoy and love what you do. That was my experience. And so I would say that that's uh, significant for long-term success uh, in the industry. We had a training on Monday with, uh, an, you know, inside RLO training for agents on Monday. And one of the conversations Dave Bawa actually brought up was, you, you've seen some of his videos, his marketing videos, they're great. Dave Bawa's? Yeah, Dave Bowers. Yes, I've seen I've seen stuff Dave's done, of course. Yeah. yeah, and they're great. But what he was talking to people about was that you needed to sort of find yourself. Don't look at what he's doing or somebody else is doing, and you know, 
mimic mm-hmm. and copy it because you may look goofy if you walk around saying and doing some of the stuff Dave Bowa says. Yeah, totally. So like, I mean, I have an example of this in my own life. A lot of people know the name, um, or some people know the name Jesse Peters, the social savvy realtor. You know, he's in Winnipeg, Manitoba. He's my brother-in-law. He got into real estate, I don't know how many years ago, maybe eight to 10 years ago anyways. my Our, our wives are sisters. And so he runs these like video boot camps, you know, and he, he has, he sells real estate. He does well at that. And then he has this other gig where, you know, he teaches people how to use video and and promote themselves online. And I've talked to him about this as well. And like, there's, there's people that go to his boot camps or learn from him and just try to copy him. And more often than not, that doesn't go well. The people who, who, you know, who really takes off for, who really, you know, grab hold of it, take the ideas and the concepts, but then insert their own style and philosophy into it so it's actually kind of ridiculous like i've seen a couple agents from across north america literally copy him verbatim to the point where like the the way they're moving the way they're talking the things they're saying it's like they took a video of his and then made it identical and it's so obvious that it, it just feels canned right and what dave's getting at i think is really true like we're all unique human beings and like in dave's case as an example dave's into music. He's actually a really good artist and he can sing and he loves to cook. He's a chef. And so he has inserted that into the way he operates. His clients know that about him. Uh, it, it comes across in everything that he does. That is authenticity. And that's good from a client experience perspective. And it's also great from an agent perspective because you're just being you. Pratik is another guy like Pratik isn't, you know, I've never gotten to eat his food. I hope one day I get to, but Pratik is, seems to be an amazing chef. He's really into the culinary arts and, you know, he's done a number of, of videos and things like that, that incorporate, you know, the preparation and consumption of food. And uh, I think, I mean, number one, people love food. And number two, people love to know who a person is. And so, yeah, the more you can incorporate the more significant depth to who you are and, and, and allow your clients and the public to see that, uh, I think, I think the better off you are and you're the, the greater the chance of you standing out because nobody else is you. You're the only you and you're unique. I love the idea of tr- somebody trying to keep up with, uh, Jesse, you'd need like the energy of 10, five-year-olds to mimic him. <laughs> oh, a hundred percent. Just like Jesse is you know, like if he were sitting here in this conversation right now, he'd number one, he'd burst out laughing and he'd totally agree. He'd be, he'd say something, the effect of like, yeah, I'm, I'm crazy. Like, and he, he knows he's got energy. He, he's got energy. He's got crazy energy. Jesse's actually, he has incredibly high highs and he can have low lows. Right. I think that's mm-hmm. probably typical of a person who's that high energy at some point in time you crash. Right. But, um, you know, when he's working, he's on and, uh, and yeah, to, to attempt to do the Jesse Peters thing, if that is not who you are, I mean, it's just going to come across so bad. It'd be obvious. It would be, it'd be so obvious. Yeah. And not to say that there aren't other Jesse Peters in the world or other Dave Bawas or Pratik Singhs, but you know, you've got to take, take the concepts and then, and then, you know, make them yours and somehow find a way to have your personality and who you are shine through. So we're seeing obviously the market shifting a little bit and starting to soften. And so a lot of people are wondering more specifically, we're going to talk about buyers and sellers first, but what, what do you think agents should be doing right now to manage buyers and sellers expectations as the market softens? Well, 
the first thing to do is to gain some perspective. And I had, and I recognize that that's tough for someone if you're newer in the business. I had a good conversation with Jesse Bragg, actually. It was, I think it was yesterday or the day before. And, you know, he was encountering a circumstance where, you know, this exact question was being asked. And I just kind of said, okay, everybody just needs to take a time out and look at some data. So if we go back to the last time that we had a significant correction, we have to go all the way back to 2008 and nine, uh, when the, you know, the, the world crashed for totally different reasons and, and, you know, the financial world fell apart. And in that time, on average, the Fraser Valley market corrected, depending on which, you know, segment you look at, it was between 12 and 15%. And that didn't happen overnight. It happened over a period of like, you know, call it, you know, six to 18 months, again, depending on, you know, what type of property you're talking about. Now, when that occurred, Leading up to that in 2008 and coming through 2007, the active listing inventory in the Fraser Valley Real Estate Board had come from a place where it had, you know, it had been as low as just under 5,000. It had climbed through 2007, 2008 to levels around, um, you know, between 6,500 and 8,000. And then, you know, things snapped. And then over the period of about six to 12 months, we went to we got to levels as high as over 13,000 properties for sale in the Fraser Valley Real Estate Board. I remember it crossed over. I can't remember the exact month, but I remember seeing that and just, you know, that blowing my mind. And at that time, we had absorption rates of under 5%. Now, if you think about how significant those numbers are, and then realize the fact that in and amongst under 5% absorption and over 13,000 listings for sale, we only corrected 12 to 15%. Now take that perspective to today's conversation and go, okay, well, you know, where do we fit into that conversation? Well, you know, we're so spoiled in the, from the last 12 months of this post pandemic craze, you know, we, for time at times we were under 4,000 listings for sale. And then, you know, we kind of bumped around for a while at, you know, between low fours and mid fours. And today, I think last I checked a couple of days ago, we were at about 53 or 5,400, 53, 5,400 is still incredibly low inventory. Now, is it slightly different than what we had six weeks ago? Sure. And have we seen some slightly different outcomes on sales? Yeah, absolutely. And maybe you could even suggest that we're a few percent back on prices from our peak values of say four to eight weeks ago. And I would agree with that. I think anecdotally, everybody has a story of, you know, they tried to sell something and they didn't quite, you know, hit the same home run that they would have hit two months ago. But we got to keep perspective and still realize that properties are still selling on average very, very quickly if priced properly. And looking at the picture from the last 12 months, we're still up in some cases, you know, 50% in terms of values year over year. So to your question of what do I do today? Well, today with that perspective, I go, there's 5,300 homes for sale. We are still in, in a very strong seller's market. And what I'm doing is I'm watching the data daily. I'm maybe dialing expectations back a few percent from what I think peak values might have been. And depending on the property I'm selling, I'm picking my strategy accordingly. There would be some properties where I'd probably not utilize the strategy of like going low and assuming I'm going to have multiple offers. But there's some property types where I absolutely still would. You know, in every market, whether you're talking, you know, Delta, Surrey, White Rock, Abbotsford, Mission, 
we all know that that you know affordable family home with a basement suite uh, is still in a good neighborhood is still a premium premium offering, and that is still commanding multiple offers. And I think the right strategy to employ is or employ is that strategy of you know showing for a period of days and then and then looking at offers on a particular advertised day. If you've got something kind of unique or in a higher price point, or maybe where you felt the market's cooled a bit, then maybe I drop that strategy. Maybe I just try to price it properly and just take offers as they come. All that being said though, no matter what strategy you use, if you're priced right right now, which again could be a couple percent back from the peak of the market of 48 weeks ago, you're still going to sell a property on average in probably under two to three weeks, which historically speaking is an insanely hot market. So I think we need to be careful not to, you know, get ourselves whip up, whipped up into a tizzy here saying that things are correcting. If somebody were to ask me to put money down and say, well, if you're betting, what do you think is going to happen in the market between now and the end of the year? If someone gave me an option of say down another 5% status quo or up another 5%, I'd probably lean towards saying up another 5% versus down or even staying the same. I think that we've just hit uh, a bit of buyer fatigue. Uh, when people saw the prices they saw, we saw a rush of inventory come to market after spring break because I think you know there was a lot of people who wanted to take advantage of what they saw and they, they waited till after spring break to hit the market. But I, I think that that's seasonal. And as we get through late spring and into summer, you're not gonna see as much or as many people coming to market, I think. I mean, I'm projecting a little bit, but I think. And uh, and I still think we're in an environment where, you know, you got low interest rates. People can't spend money on travel and a number of other things that they're used to spending money on. And they've already shown through their habits of the last, you know, 12 months that they're redirecting those funds into real estate, whether it be buying and selling process or uh, or renovating. That's a long answer. There you go. No, that's great. I think a little bit more specifically, I'm curious though, if you're sitting down with a seller who's seen what's happened over the last number of months, their neighbors may be selling right away for, you know, exponentially higher than what they listed for. What, what are you as an agent saying to that seller to sort of prepare them for this, you know, that it may be a little bit different, not that it's bad. It's certainly not bad, but that it's going to be different. Well, I'm, I'm kind of having a conversation like I just did there. I'm walking through the story of the market of the last six months, showing them with, albeit it's probably more anecdotal evidence because we haven't had the data, enough data come out to show a mild correction, but I can show people sales from eight weeks ago and then show them a sale from this week of a very comparable property. And there's a lot of examples of the most recent sales being down a few percent. So I'm showing that trend. What I'm noticing too, is at least my clients, they're not ignorant. They see the extra inventory. They see that, you know, a, a home that sold had two offers, not 14 offers, like was the story, you know, two months ago. And so they're piecing together the evidence. And then, you know, when you have that conversation, I have found that, you know, laid out the right way, people understand that. And they, you know, I, I haven't at least, ha I haven't had a challenge or, or a difficult time getting people's minds around what are what is an appropriate expectation of value and you know we all get caught right like i brought a property to market a few weeks ago and you know a few weeks ago we were still you know so much changes every week and as it turns out i priced it wrong 
and we kind of observed, sat there on the market for 10 to 14 days, had a very open conversation with the seller. Seller and I eventually agreed on the right strategy. We took it off, relisted it, 100 grand less, sold. The ironic, ironic thing is, you know, take it off, relist it. We had multiple offers and we still got a subject free offer after we made that $100,000 reduction. Now that was a $1.6, $1.7 million home, but think about what a hundred grand is. We're talking about, you know, we made a, a seven, six, seven percent adjustment uh, on our offering and that made an instant difference. And we got multiple offers and sold it subject free in a matter of days. So, you know, it's not like the world has crashed, but we just need to be very accurate on our value assessment. And I think the buyers are intelligent enough to see the difference between the listings that are accurately priced and aren't. And the proof is in the pudding. I mean, there's sales still happening and, and that's an example of it. So with the, the fact that, you know, the numbers you're talking about, you're just, the numbers are very small in difference. Do you think agents should be doing anything right now to adjust how they're doing their business? Like you mean in the conversation with clients or in the... No, their own business. So how do you think... It, yeah. Sure. Yeah. So I think, you know, this is the a pitfall of, or a, a bad habit that people fall into in this industry is when the market is busy, all we're doing is we're, is we're harvesting and we're not planting seeds. And so there's going to come a time when, you know, the harvest ends. And if you haven't been planting seeds for six, nine, 12 months, then you're going to feel that at some point in time. So things like you know whatever people have done or or intended to do and the, the activities they've dropped whether it's been you know the activities within their database maybe it's a you know farming a particular neighborhood maybe it's um you know business relationships like professional associations rotaries you know kids sporting events whatever whatever it is that the activities you need to do in order to drive business in a more normal world my advice to everyone right now would be make sure you are engaging your database and the people in your life at that level because you know you're going to you're going to need that and sometimes you know there's a, there's a fostering of a relationship before a transaction that takes 6 12 18 months you know the actions you take today are going to be maybe what uh, generates your revenue 12 to 18 months from now and 12 to 18 months from now it's highly likely that we're not going to be in this type of hot real estate market. You kind of answer part of the question I was going to ask next, which is what's your conversation with a new agent that has been in the market or, you know, been in real estate, maybe just for the last half year, who has been in this position of very busy market, relatively easy to sell, very difficult to help buyers, but mm -hmm. how do you help them shift and think about something when they haven't? And I mean, even seasoned agents might fall into this too, but where they've not seen that down time that that market that's slower and definitely requires a bit more work yeah like i just would start by saying like we all fall into it like i can t say that i have fallen into it like just for sheer lack of time i've done i have missed out on some things that i normally do this year that i haven't done literally because there's only 24 hours in a day so don't you know beat yourself up over that i mean i think that's that's normal to a degree jennifer field had a great, she has a great philosophy. We, we pot, it was in one of our first podcasts, actually, when we, when we launched this podcast before Christmas, we were doing some business planning stuff and Jen Field talks about the seasons of her business throughout the year. You know, she doesn't expect herself to be seed planting for all 12 months. 
because in Harvest, so the way she runs her business, like, you know, she is gangbuster, even pre-pandemic market. She, she says, well, I'm gangbuster, like, let's say March to June. So March to June, she's not doing the database seed planting activity, but she's very disciplined in that, you know, other times of the year, she's religious about doing that. So I would say that it's, you know, for everybody, not that we all chose this, but we've been in this incredible season of harvest where we've just barely kept up and it's been great. We've been making sales and people have been making money, but, but now you need to turn your attention to, you know, to, to the activities that are going to create a harvest next year. And then to your, you know, sorry, I, I rambled there a little bit, but your question about a new agent who has started in this, I would say, well, adopt the Genfield philosophy of give yourself a break. You don't have to do all things at one time. And sometimes just managing your time and getting one thing done can feel overwhelming when you're, when you're new. But yeah, there's a double-edged sword. Like, you know, uh, I, there's agents that started in our office in 2011 and 2012, and they would have done anything at that time to run into a buyer who was ready to buy. And they didn't. And as a result, I think they formed some really good habits early on because they had the lack of opportunity. The the other edge to that sword is, you know, and I'll use, I'll pick on Jesse Bragg as an example. You know, he's a new agent in Fort Langley. He's been around for, I think, not even a year. So maybe he's missed out on some of the lessons that an agent from 2011-12 learned early on. But what Jesse has gotten to do is he's gotten to get in front of people and write contracts and do deals. And there's lessons that are learned in that as well. So I think you just need to have an awareness. If you've been an agent who started in the last, let's say, 12 to 18 months, you need to be aware of the environment that you've started in and be asking those around you, those that you go to for advice about what life is like in a more normal world and trying to dig in now and almost recreate the mentality from 2009 to 2012 uh, simulate it as much as you can by talking to people and start to pick up on some of those activities and those lessons that those people will have learned. So where do you think agents should be spending uh, marketing dollars right now? Where do you think the best place is for them? I would definitely, however a person is envisioning their perception being to the world, like whatever, you know, whatever that's going to be, I want to word that properly. Like you got to, mm-hmm. you got to come up with who you are, right? And so who you are is going to come through in your website and your social media presence and whatever you choose to do that is your brand and your image. So I would first spend money on making sure that that brand and image is what I want it to be and that there is a high level of congruency between whatever mediums you're going to appear on. So, you know, like Facebook, website, Instagram, like whatever else you're on. And then there's, you know, we're talking about digital stuff, but then whatever you're doing, that's not digital as well. I think a mistake that people make is they get drawn into marketing opportunities and they're doing three or four different things that are all different and fragmented and there's no consistency. So I'd first establish, you know, whatever, feel good about your brand and your image and then spend money making sure you're consistent across the, across the spectrum. And then once you have that and you've got the consistency, then I would look at where you have opportunity for growth. So 
talking about, if you use the terminology of income streams, you know, I'll use the word database a lot, obviously, you know, I've, I've heard that, I, I use that a lot because I believe very much in that, but then you've got other income streams like, you know, professional associations, neighborhoods, referral sources, like sometimes people lean heavily on referrals from uh, other agents across the country. But I would look at an income stream in your life where you think there's potential for growth. And then that's where I would direct my marketing dollars. For some people that might just be, they might say, hey, you know what, I, I want to spend some money on some ads on, you know, Facebook or YouTube or Instagram. I would be, I would, anytime you're spending money on advertising, my caution would be make sure you've ticked the other boxes first have your branding and messaging crystal clear and totally consistent because I think there's lots of examples of people who've spent money in that fashion, but it's money that goes to waste because, you know, their, their messaging's a little bit off or they haven't thought through that enough. And I would always look to spend money on the most fertile soil. So if you've already got some traction in like, let's say, I don't know, let's say your kids are in a minor hockey association. Like I'll use Joe Pertap. Joe Pertap's kids are in hockey. I know that he makes a concerted effort to drive revenue out of those hockey relationships uh, in his life. To me, that's a very wise use of dollars because he's already a known entity. His face is in that environment all the time. There's already a level of trust and awareness of Joe. And so if he were to spend a little bit of money and and strategy strategize about how to drive revenue from that stream, to me, that's totally different than dropping money on somewhere in the wide open world we live in on a bunch of strangers who don't know who you are. The only thing I want to add to is just from a nerd who likes numbers is also find a way to measure it. Make sure you've got some sort of analytics and ROI, not just throwing money at, at anything. Totally. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a amateur when it comes to, you know, the, um, the digital side of things. And I mean, I, you know, as a brokerage, we, that's what you do. And, and, you know, so I can't say I do it, but we do that on a brokerage level, but in my own sales business, I absolutely have measured and managed everything I've done for years. Now, as it turns out, you know, I didn't build my career on Facebook and Instagram ads because I was, you know, building my career a little bit before that time. But all the activities that I've done, the dollars that I've spent on neighborhood marketing, um, professional associations that I'm involved in, uh, you know, any money I, dollars I spent there, and the dollars that I spent in my database, I could break down with a percentage the return on investment, the money that I spent in all of those areas. And I totally agree with you. That's highly important because if something's not working, that's not a bad thing. You just need to know that it's not working so that you can either you know, shift it, adjust it, or stop doing it. What do you think agents do currently that's the biggest waste of time and energy? Oh, man. <laughs> waste time on Instagram. <laughs> and I don't mean <laughs> ads. I just mean like, so, like social media. I don't know. That's maybe just a life conversation, not an agent conversation. But I think people waste a lot of time on social media, just burning up hours. I don't know. I, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not over everybody's shoulder, but the more people I talk to, I, I hear similar stories and I've found that in, of myself, I can all of a sudden get lost in my phone doing something that's a complete waste of time where I could have been way more productive that time with that time. So 
that's maybe not a business. I, I should answer that from a business perspective, but I would absolutely say try to try to make sure that your time on social media is is a good use of your time and there's a benefit coming from it because I think it's easy to get sucked into that vortex. Mm -hmm. That aside, like, you know, just talking about maybe waste of time business activities, I would, I would, I'll answer it like this. I think that everybody, no matter who you are, like whether you're a brand new agent who has yet to crack a hundred grand and, and make 10 deals or an agent who's whatever, doing a million dollars, I think that everybody needs to delegate more. And so, uh, the, you know, a hot topic, you know, a common topic you hear around that is hiring an assistant. And that's not achievable for everybody because not everybody's going to go and get a $40,000 a year employee, depending on the level of business you're at. But just because you don't have a personal, uh, an assistant or a full, uh, a full-time assistant doesn't mean you can't have a part-time assistant. It doesn't mean that you, like maybe you haven't engaged with a high level accountant yet who's going to stick with you and be with you for the next 15 years of your career, a bookkeeper. I know there's a lot of agents that, you know, don't, they don't pay enough attention to the administration and bookkeeping side of things. And then once a year when tax season comes around, they're just totally distracted and, and immersed in the stress of dealing with paperwork, which they're probably not naturally gifted at because they're salespeople and uh, it just dominates their life for a two to four week period. And so delegating, um, you know, grading a great bookkeeper is a, is a very important thing to do. And then, you know, other things too, like whatever, think of all the stuff that you do in your, in your life, whether it's paperwork processing, measuring houses, photography, like whatever. Uh, there, there's so many things that we have in our life that we do, and you have to take a hard look at all these things and say, what is the value of my time? And once I understand the value of my time or what the value of my time should be, then what activities should I be alleviating myself from? Because I can actually hire that activity out for less money than my value. And if I can take that time and put it into the activities that, are, that I need to be doing, then I can, then I can, that's a good investment of my time and I can drive more revenue. So I think that philosophy, no matter what stage you are in your career, taking a hard look at what you're doing is a, is, is the way I would probably answer that question. So I want to ask you a question that's a little more generic, not specific to Remax Little Oak and more answered from the agent Andrew side versus the broker owner Andrew side. What do you think is the role that a brokerage plays in an agent's career? So I'm answering this as salesperson or a broker right now? Salesperson. Jeez, there's, there's a lot of words that come to my mind. So support, professionalism, consistency, dependability. I'll put it this way. Like, so I, you know, I built my career at Little Oak. Uh, I've never been anywhere else, but I would say what I, I and thank God that, you know, for all of my career, I've never even, I, I can't think of a time that I've ever had to worry about this. But the assumption in my brain was that I could go out and do my job and I never had to worry about anybody else at the brokerage not doing their job. And now there's a lot of, there's a lot of pieces to that. There's, there's management, there's administration, there's conveyancing, there's custodial stuff. There's, you know, people running around dropping checks. So I would, yeah, I, I think the, the brokerage's main 
goal is to create an environment where agents only have to think about doing their job and never have to worry about anything outside of that. I think, you know, I had the fortune of building my career in that type of environment. And that is, that's what I think of as a salesperson. But then because I've uh, ridden the salesperson chair for 18 years to a, I would say, fairly high level, that is the mentality that I bring into the, into the broker chair is that, you know, I've, I've sold a lot of real estate. And so I, I want to create that environment and, and continue to look for ways to better and improve it so that agents can just go out, do their job and never think twice about, you know, the brokerage, not doing something that the brokerage needs to do. Okay. So let's swap now to the brokerage side, to the broker, the broker owner, Andrew side, and how would he answer that? So the end result is probably still the same, but the, the methodology, like the way I think through that now is different because the main, the main piece obviously is like, when you think of that through a salesperson perspective, you know, you're only thinking about yourself, right? I mean, you're not responsible for other people. And then when you flip over to the broker chair, now it's not only agents, but it's also staff within the brokerage that, that all contribute to making this machine run smoothly. I think where I start that conversation is first with a belief systems and philosophies. You know, what do we, what do we believe about ourselves and what are our value statements? Kind of organically over the last 24 months, there's the tagline that, you know, people have seen being used and I've heard people using it. We have amazing people. And so I would say that is a belief that kind of is the umbrella over everything that we have and do in the brokerage is that we have amazing people. That's been true for my 18 year tenure. And then in my involvement from an ownership level uh, in the last three years, that's been by far the most important thing in my mind. And that's at a staffing level and at an agent level. So, you know, I want to make sure that within the industry, we are, we are fostering an environment where we have the most professional, courteous, kind, and effective agents in the industry. And I want our staff to be thought of as the most amazing, you know, administrative and management support within the industry. And then from there, it filters down to our, our values. Like, you know, what do we, what do we value as a company? And I would say, you know, we value some of the things I just mentioned, professionalism, empathy, uh, obviously productivity. I mean, that, that, that statistic of, you know, we have, slightly less than 5% of the agents in the Fraser Valley Real Estate Board, and we do 20% of the transactions. Like clearly productivity, a high level of productivity is a value of our company. I think that over time, the way we get to that, it's maybe shifted, you know, maybe at one time numbers and stats and sales were a little bit higher up the value chart than they are today. But I think that when you focus on having great people, high productivity just follows. And so we, we've never been more productive on a per agent basis uh, than we are today. And so that's clearly, um, you know, an important value within our, um, you know, within our company. So I think, I think through, yeah, I think through systematically um, philosophies, value systems, belief systems from the ownership chair that of course I would have never thought through from the sales side chair 
But the outcome actually, I think there's the same result. Like at the end of the day, we need to have a really high functioning machine where everybody loves to come and work. And if we create that environment, then our agents are going to have successful sales careers and our staff are going to have successful careers of their own. And they're going to be happy and love what they do. And that to me, like if you can get up every day and go to work and love what you do and love the people around you, I, I think a lot of the stuff, a lot of the other stuff we're talking about in terms of the successes and the achievements will, will follow. So talking obviously a little bit more now about the Arlo brokerage, and then you mentioned a, a high functioning machine. I thought it'd be a good chance for us to bring up, you know, most of the, our, our, this podcast is targeted towards uh Remax little local agents. Yeah. And uh, we've had questions with regards to why and how some of the things are done. And one of the things I know that's been brought up is our phone system and voicemail system, mm -hmm. how it works and why we use it. Yeah. And thought this might be a good, a good place to clear the air and explain totally. it a little bit. Totally. Like a, it's like a, yeah, it's like a little meeting where we can hash out things. Okay. So I'm going to lean on you for some of the data, but I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back, you know, how we got to where we got to. So, um, obviously pre pandemic, uh, we used, uh, the old answering service, whatever that was called. I don't know the name of it, but it's, it's the, you know, there's a couple different options within the industry in the Fraser Valley. And we used one of them and we used one of them forever. We've always used an answering service. And then of course, in the, um, in, you know, when we went into the pandemic and the lockdown and the world changed, then two things were happening. I mean, number one, you know, real estate was, the, the sales volume was dropping significantly. And on a brokerage level, we were looking for ways to immediately cut some costs to, to be able to lay those savings out to our agents, which we did, right? Like we went through a, a number of things. So everything got thrown on the table. Like I remember this, you know, five days in a row of meetings that we had as a management and leadership group. And it was just like, nothing was untouchable. And so one of the byproducts of that was that we cut the answering service and we said, okay, short term, we're going to deal with this with our own people because nobody can come into the office. Nobody can work anyway. And we were looking for ways to keep some of our people employed because we clearly didn't have some of the regular activities for them to do. So that's where it started. And then as a lot of businesses and industries have discovered in their adjustment through the pandemic, we actually got some pleasant surprises through the course of the next few months when we started to observe some of the difference in the data. So this is where I'll look to you to give us some of the highs and lows, but you know, pre-pandemic, there was some data that came from answering services that we always had access to, but it was like data about, you know, well, how often do calls get dropped or missed or improper messages get sent out or realtors get messages without the proper phone number, or maybe they've screwed up a name or a message has been sent without incomplete information. So we just never knew that there was any other options. And so now we had data from our new system and we were able to compare the two. So maybe I'll let you talk a little bit about that. And then I'll talk about what our philosophy has been, um, you know, moving forward. Right. So when, uh, COVID hit and we had to lock down, we originally went back to the answering service and about two weeks in, we had to figure some stuff out and through looking through stats and comparing it to old stats, realized that at that time we were actually losing close to 20 to 25% of calls because of the answering service. And when we looked at past history, we were actually still quite high in the percentage of, of just lost calls. These are not just 
you know, somebody hung up. These are calls that got through and nothing ever happened from them. Like, let me, let's just break that down for a second. Just so, so, mm -hmm. cause I, I didn't even fully understand that at first. So, you know, Joe, Joe Thiessen phones in to the answering service and says, hi, answering service. I'm looking for Brian or whatever. And then tell me what that means. They were lost. Like what actually happened? So it, well, they, we're not even getting that far. These are calls that just, there was nothing that ever happened from right. them. A call. So the way that our phone system works, we, because we integrate multiple offices into a phone system, the phone comes in and when they were on nights or when, you know, it was busy, which that never happened. But when it was on nights, those calls automatically redirect to the answering service. We can track those as soon as they come into us, we redirect it to the answering service. Yes. And we were losing at that point right there, 20 to 25% of the calls, because which means when people knew they were going to an answering service, so the consumer, and this is the true of any scenario, this is not maybe even just real estate specific, but when they figured out they weren't going to talk to a human, they hung up the phone, right? No, that was 20 to 25% that never got picked up by the answering oh, service. Oh, the answering service never even picked it up because they're right. too busy. And we, that's right. And we assumed it was because of COVID and them being too busy. But when we looked at past history, we were still in the 15 to 20% right. roughly lost call. Right. And then we compound that with the fact, like what you said, we were finding that people were getting wrong messages. The answering service obviously doesn't follow up or ask any additional questions and uh, agents were missing out. And so that's why we shifted to something where we could take a recorded message and get it directly to the agent, which meant they were getting more detail, caller ID, caller name. And in our case as well, which most people probably aren't aware of, is that if a voicemail or a message comes in that we can't understand, we're not sure, maybe it was an accidental hang up, our staff are actually calling those people back to find out who it was that they wanted to reach so that we can make sure we get them in contact, which never could have happened using uh, the answering service. No. And what I loved about this, and again, this kind of evolved as we went, but that like, you know, if somebody calls in and the message is kind of garbled and it's for a name and, and, an, and an address and there was incomplete information, our staff can kind of piece it together because they know all of our agents, they know what office they work in, and they also have access to look up the property so that they can kind of confirm the info. And then to your point, if there's, if there's still gray area, phone the person back and say, Hey, it's, uh, it's Ali from uh, little Oak. We know you just left the message for Pratik. Just wanted to clarify that it was Pratik you wanted to talk to. And this is the property you were calling about. And the person goes, yeah, that's right. And then boom, message goes out. And like, that is uh, when I discovered that we could do, or when we discovered that we could do that, we just realized like, my gosh, this is a way higher level of, uh, of service than we could ever get through a third party, like, like any answering service. Right. We also were able to track the fact that we lost less than a percent of calls, which meant that the people were at least getting to the system, whether they chose to leave a message or not. But also if you just like numbers, our office sees anywhere between 25 and 3,200 calls a month. And we send out anywhere from 350 to 450 voicemails a month. And that's after hours messages. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so then I should also say too, that, I mean, I don't know if I need to say this, but I will say this. Like when we, when we went into this, I mean, there was clearly a cost savings, uh, mentality because of what was going on in the world. And we were, you know, we, we were trying to look for, and, and when we first did it, there, there was a cost, cost savings because we we hacked the contract with the answering service 
And then, you know, some of our staff, they, they weren't able to work full time, but this was some work that we could give them. I, I should say now that now that we're operational and running with this, we're certainly not continuing this because it's a cost savings. In fact, I don't even know or think that it is a cost mm -hmm. savings. Uh, uh, you could maybe speak to that as well. We, we, it might actually be just very similar to what we did before. So the motivation to continue this actually has nothing to do with money. Uh, it is solely related to the numbers and the data. And so, um, yeah, I guess that's, that's all I'll say about that. And I'm, I'm always, my mentality is I'm always willing to be convinced to do something different. I just want to follow the data. And, and if we're going to, you know, do something that somebody says is better then we need to be able to prove that it is better. And, you know, we've kind of stumbled into this and I recognize that it was a shift in habits for people. Obviously it's, you know, it's different watching your email for a, for a voicemail, but you know, we can, we can get used to new habits in my mind, if we know that the, that the performance and the outcome is drastically better than what we had before. Yeah. And one thing to also keep in mind is this, one of the big benefits was the redundancy and the lack of downtime where if a system goes down, this doesn't stop. Yes. We don't have to worry about all of a sudden there's lost calls. Yeah. Uh, or, or your clients can't get a hold of, uh, of their agent. Uh, this always works and we always have staff working on the back end through the evenings and weekends to make sure that these get uh, in the voicemail. It says, no matter when you leave this, if it's, you know, evenings or weekends, we'll get you in contact with the agent you're looking for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Would you invest today in BC? And if yes or no, why? And in what? I just bought a property. I haven't even completed on it. I bought a property less than two months ago. And so I'm, I'm saying that because yes, of mm -hmm. course I would. Yep. Uh, and that, and it is in BC. And to me, it's a function of like, you know, a person, I think of a, so, I mean, number one, there, there's a saying that, that people have probably heard and, you know, you can either try what's more important, timing the market or time in the market. And I believe that time in the market uh, is far more important than trying to time the market. So, you know, could I have bought the same property for less money nine months ago? Sure. Yeah, of course. But it's a property that I think is really, it's a great property to have. And I believe in the long-term value of holding property, hence the time in comment. I would absolutely uh, invest in the BC market almost at any time in the last 18 years of my career. I don't care what year or month, there's always something that makes sense to buy. There's always some things that don't make sense to buy, of course, but there's always something that makes sense. And, you know, you got to be intelligent and, you know, take the time to learn and, and think through what your goals are. I, I'll never forget a conversation I had with, with a client. So back to the, the, the last boom, like not the boom of 2000, 15, 16, 17, I'm talking about the one before that. So from 2003 to 2007, uh, the market was pretty red hot. And I remember a client who bought, it was a basement entry home with a suite in East Abbotsford. And they bought that home in like 2008. And it was right before, like the world crashed, like August. I think that's when the stock market blew up in 2008. They probably bought this in like June or July. I can't remember the exact numbers, but I want to say at the time they paid around I don't know, 500 grand or high fours. And at the time that was, that was a lot of money. And, you know, not long before those homes had been worth like, you know, 299 kind of thing. Mm 
anyways, they thought their life was over after the world crashed. <laughs> Those people ended up staying in that home. So, you know, we all agreed in the conversation in 2008, oh crap, we, we bought at the absolute peak. That sucks. And of course, you know, we know the story of the next, you know, seven to 10 years and they ended up staying in that home. And at one point in time, I sold that home for um, just under a million dollars. And, you know, that home today is worth way more than a million dollars. But time in the market is the most important thing. And yes, I would absolutely buy real estate right now. And I'll be completing on something in July. Nice. So we've had this question before, but, you know, obviously people want to ask it and they're still curious. And maybe you've got something else on your mind. But if you could do one thing differently in your career up to right now, what would it be? So in my career, I would have been more relational and less transactional with my clients earlier on. I think I kind of covered that before once in, the, in a conversation. Maybe I didn't do it. In our last one. Yeah, yeah but I, I was... It was just a, it was a shift in my brain and I was young and dumb. Like, I don't know, like, you know, you gotta, you gotta give yourself a chance to make mistakes too, but becoming relational with people, being vulnerable with them, showing them who you are, learning to talk to your clients on a level that I think there's an old school mentality. Like I think, you know, like my dad and, you know, the baby boomer generation, no shot to, you know, Stan Weeb and Gary Dirksen, if they happen to be listening, I love these guys deeply, but. I think in that era, it was less, you know, less normal to talk that way with people. And then those are the people that I, you know, that's the, you know, those, that's the generation that taught me. And I think as, as we've evolved as humans and, you know, the new generation of agents has come up, I think it's more normal to integrate personal life and work, you know, more seamlessly. And I think the more you, the faster you can learn to do that and just, you know, be your authentic self and be highly relational. I think that that has so many benefits. I think it drives revenue, like from a pure business conversation. It, I think it absolutely makes you attractive and helps you establish brand, gives something for somebody to fall in love with because you're not just like a generic robot. But then it also, it, it gives you enjoyment because you're not this concept of like putting on my work hat and then coming home and putting on my, my, you know, my home hat. I think there's less of that and that, and the less you can have that, the better. I think it's just better to try to wear one hat as much as you can. What was the question again? There was one other thing I had a thought about that. Can you repeat that question? What would you do differently up to this point? All right. And then, so that's, that's the, that's the, the real estate sales philosophy side of things. But then the other, just cause we were talking about real estate. The other thing that popped into my head was I was stupid and so I, I was smart in that I bought a lot of condos when I was young in the business because, you know, I had good people in my life telling me what to do and that was, that was great. And so I bought some condos and, you know, they went up in value from, you know, 2004, five, six, seven kind of thing. And I remember there was a period of time in 2000, uh, whatever, eight and nine, you know, like the, so the market had peaked and then we went into this crash and. I put myself in a spot financially where I felt pressure. And so number one, that was a mistake on my part where I was probably living too aggressively with not enough of a buffer in the bank account. But in retrospect, I don't even think that was as much the case. I just think that I panicked a bit and I sold off some of those condos. And that was a mistake because at the time, like, I mean, it's stupid. What am I going to do? So I had some equity there and sure the cash in my bank account made me feel better, but I triggered uh, capital gains tax. It's not like, you know, I needed the money, 
And that was a big error because, you know, I gave away hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars of equity had I kept those condos and I, if I still owned those today. I mean, you know, we don't have to talk about what condos have done in the last, you know, 10 to 13 years. And so, um, you know, back to the time in market, just, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to buy a million things. You just need to buy like a property, start with one, and then maybe in another year or two, grab another one. And you don't do anything. You just hold it and you wait. And the power uh, of holding real estate over time is, is phenomenal. So, you know, I'm going to be okay, but that's a mistake that I made. I wish I, I sold like three condos at that time. And uh, I kind of regret that. All right, let's wrap this up with something fun. If you could be a professional athlete in any sport, what would it be? Oh, that's an amazing question. Hmm. I would either be a golfer, but you know what? Probably not a golfer. I'd probably, oh man, shoot. Either a quarterback in the NFL or a point guard in the NBA. Because, and I'd probably, I'd probably lean towards point guard in the NBA. I like, I like being a leader, but I, and I really like team. So I love the game. I love the game of golf. Like I just absolutely love it, but that's an very, it's way more of an individualistic sport. And that's one of the reasons why I love it because you're alone in your own head when you're playing it. And I think there's some like incredible lessons that come from that. But if I had a career, I'd probably want to be, yeah, I'd want to be a, a point guard on an NBA team. I love the idea of having, you know, whatever, being the captain of the floor and being responsible for other people and trying to get the best out of them. And some of the greatest memories in my life are team sport scenarios. I just, I love, you know, working hard with people uh, to get something done. So basketball is not my favorite sport to watch or even play, but that's probably, uh, that's probably what I would do. Well, point guard versus quarterback too, you're a lot less likely to get crushed. Yeah. And the thing is, is like, I, I've always like dreamed about being a quarterback. I think that'd be amazing. But the reality was, is that even when I played football, I wasn't a quarterback. I was a, uh, yeah, I was more of a skill position guy. Quarterback is crazy. Like you gotta be, I think that quarterbacks are in a, in a particular way. They're some of the most intelligent people, maybe the most intelligent people in sports, like the information that you have to process you know, and, and you only know this if you know the game intimately, but what those guys are doing in their heads at the line of scrimmage, reading defenses and then making split second decisions with the ball, understanding complete defensive schemes and their offensive packages, like that is an absolutely insane job. And I think it takes a very uh, unique and amazing mind to be able to do that uh, effectively. Awesome. Well, this was fun. Yeah, it is fun. The second time. I enjoy, I enjoy doing this with you. Thanks. I, uh, I like having not to prepare as much too. I like just showing up and talking, not having to do all the preparation. Yeah, right. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Well, thanks again for doing it. And uh, we'll do it in a couple months. Okay, man. Take care. Have a good day. You too. Goodbye. Okay,